Well, open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Luke. Chapter 19, still in chapter 19. Got one more week to go in Luke chapter 19. We're going to be in verse 44. Forty-five. A couple weeks ago, um, a friend of mine called me and asked me to come meet him for lunch. And we sat at the Chinese buffet with our chopsticks and talked about his life and about his plans and his thoughts for the future. And he was presented with two job opportunities simultaneously, both of which were good, one of which is sort of a dream job that he's always wanted that's paying less, and one of which is not the job that he expected to be offered that's paying quite a bit more. And we're talking through this conversation. He's doing most of the talking and uh, I'm doing most of the eating and we're going on and we're going on. He's giving me all of this extraordinarily elegant, intricate uh, decision chart that he's mapped out, right? If this happens, then this, then that, then this, if this, then that, then this, then that. And he goes through this whole process and then it's his turn to eat and my turn to talk. And I knew, I knew this was a crummy thing to do, but I just said, that is an impressive decision tree but it doesn't sound to me like you are resting in the Lord's sovereignty. And I said, that's just what I hear. may not be true, but that's what I hear. And he responded after a moment of silence and shaking his head, honestly, Chris, I don't know whether to hug you or to punch you in the face. (laughs) And uh, I think that's how most people feel that know me. Uh, and that uh, I do ministry to and with. I don't think that's an unusual response. It didn't take me off guard at all. But today, as we look in our text, we see Jesus doing something that I think was simultaneously encouraging and exhilarating and deeply offensive. And I want to talk about that this morning. So look at me, if you would, in Luke 19, verse 45. And he entered the temple... And begin to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. In this simple statement, Jesus gives us insights into some of the most foundational pieces of the Christian life. Because of the context and because of what he'd just done, because of the timing of where we are in biblical history, this is Passover week. Because of all of these things, this simple statement about the temple offers us incredible insight into some kind of basic things to what it means to be a Christian. At a very broad level, Jesus is actually commenting on the gospel itself. You have to remember that in this particular setting, during the Passover, the people of God were essentially going through the ancient rehearsal for the cross. The Passover is a rehearsal of the cross. The sacrificial system is a rehearsal of the cross. It is a preparation for the coming Messiah and the coming sacrifice, which would end the sacrificial system. So as the people of God are gathering in the temple to offer a sacrifice for Passover, as they are remembering this this moment in their history when God invited them to, to raise up a lamb and to care for this lamb and to make it a pet and to love this lamb and then to sacrifice this lamb 
and place the blood of this lamb over the doorway of their household to be redeemed from death and bondage. Well, guys, that's the gospel. That's exactly why Jesus came. That's exactly who Jesus is. Jesus is the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the one whom we see as lovely. We, we look at him and say he is something special. And we also have to acknowledge that it is our very sins which cause him to die a brutal death whose blood is spilled. And so we have this relationship with Jesus as he is beautiful and glorious and good and true. And we killed him. And, had, and, and, and that had to happen for us to be released from the bondage of sin and death. So when Jesus is talking about this practice that's happening in the temple at the time, at one level, he's making a comment on how the gospel can be twisted, perverted, misused, and so on and so forth. We're going to get to that in a moment. But at another level, Jesus is commenting on something that's actually really, really important to the Christian life and something that we almost never hear anyone talking about directly, and that is the worship service. In a way, what Jesus is commenting on here is the way that the people of God gathered. Now, I want you to think about something. You very often, I, I very rarely, you probably very rarely as well, think about like, okay, what exactly is supposed to happen here? Why are we here? What exactly are we doing? So on and so forth. Uh, we know that we're supposed to do it, but we don't always understand why we do it or what's supposed to happen when we gather on a Sunday morning. Well, the short story is this. We are participating in, in a modified ritual that has gone on for thousands of years in which the people that God has chosen gather together to affirm his covenant and to affirm our love for him and our willingness to obey him and follow him. This Sunday gathering is a, modifi a modified version of something that's been happening for thousands of years. So when Jesus is commenting on this particular moment, when the people of God are gathering from all sorts of different places in the world, right? For you, it's a 15-minute car drive. For them, it was a 15-day journey. But the point is, they all gathered together to this one place to affirm God's covenant, to worship God, to seek his face. Jesus is saying that they've got that wrong. They've got, they've got the heart behind it wrong. They're doing something wrong. And we're going to talk about what he's getting at, what criticism he's actually offering against the way that they're gathering and in some extension, the way they're viewing the work of God in redemption. So when Jesus says, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer, what does he mean? What does he mean when he says that? Well, there are a couple ways you can go with this. If you go really, really specific, you can see that Jesus is referencing a passage in Isaiah 56. And that passage in Isaiah 56 is talking explicitly about a moment when God's Messiah will come and the worship service, the gathering of God's people, will be filled with both believers and unbelievers. That's, that's, the, that's the promise that Jesus is looking back to in Isaiah 56. A moment in time when God's people gather to seek his face, and people who are not God's people are gathered in to become God's people. So let me read the, the verse to you, the passage, just a couple of verses in Isaiah 56. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and will make them joyful in the house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. 
For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So Jesus is offering a critique against the gathering that he finds himself in, the Passover gathering, God's people collectively gathering. He says they're missing one key element. My house, this house, this gathering is supposed to be a gathering called the house of prayer for all peoples. That's the shorthand. He's referenced, he says house of prayer, house of prayer for all peoples is the, is the reference in the Old Testament. In other words, at one level, the criticism Jesus seems to be offering against their gathering was that it had become this sort of ethnic feedback loop. It was a closed system. It wasn't, it wasn't open like it was supposed to be. And one of the things I want to do in a moment is make the argument, well, let me just do it now. I need to kind of cut some stuff because we want to get to the lunch meet. Uh, uh, <laughs> the argument that I want to put forward to you this morning, because I want us to begin seeing this worship service as a huge asset to the life of this church. This is one of the biggest gifts God's given us. And if we approach it every week with intentionality, God will bless it in, in cool ways that we may not have even thought that God would use this simple gathering of worship. We often think, I'm supposed to be shortening this, we often think, you know, well, we've got to figure out like all these programs, we've got to do this or that thing. It's like the truth is God gave us this. And this is chalk packed full of pointers to him. And if we understand God's gathering purpose for this time, He's going to use this time in a special way. So let me make the case biblically that that's always been true. That God has always said that in the midst of upward worship, there should be an outward emphasis. Okay, so that's my, that's, that's the, I'm going to take you through biblical history really quick and show you that there was always this connection between upward worship, looking upward to God, and also an outward element. So, so I would take you to the very beginning, right? And I would say, here's a moment in perfection. Adam and Eve in, in the garden. Everything's great. There's literally no one to redeem. Right? Everybody's been redeemed. Adam and Eve are walking with God in the cool of the day. And God says to them, what? Bring more people. Be fruitful and multiply. So here you see God's people worshiping God while also God expressing to them this sentiment of, and we need more, right? So as you continue, you see, for instance, in the temple, Israel meets with God and God says, I'm glad you're here. Now gather in the nations, the passage we just read in Isaiah. In eternity, over and over again in the book of Revelation, you see two things. You see worship happening, right, consistently, but the worship is always accented and flavored with this idea that the nations have been gathered in, that people from every tribe and every tongue have been gathered in. So there's something about biblical worship where there's an upward and an outward at the same time. Now, I would tell you that that makes a lot of sense when you think about what the great commandment says. Remember, somebody asked Jesus, name the most important law. And Jesus says, oh, I have to give you two to love the Lord with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. And to love your neighbor as yourself. You see how that happens? There's an upward and then an outward. Over and over again in scripture, when we see true worship happening, there's an outward element to it. Um, 
One of the best examples is in Acts. Acts 2, everything is great with the church at this point. Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing proceeds to, to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. See, there's an upward gathering where the people of God gather to seek God's face and God uses that upward gathering to bring in those that are yet ungathered. That's one of the basic things Jesus is saying is wrong with these people's worship gathering. It is intended to be a house of prayer for all peoples. The upward element is supposed to be connected and expressed with an outward element, a concern for the ungathered, as Jesus would say, the sheep that are not of this fold. That's the biblical view of worship. The biblical view of worship is simultaneously upward and outward. Even in biblical cases of remarkable individual worship, we always see an outward-facing element. Well, I say always. I don't know always usually see an outward-facing element. Let me take you through a handful of examples in the Old Testament and the New Testament where people are experiencing a moment of extreme worship, right, in the presence of God, and see, show you this upward-outward connection there. So Abraham is worshiping God. The covenant is happening before his eyes. And what does God say at the end of that? The nations will be blessed through you. Moses worships God at the burning bush. It's a moment of extreme reverence and awe. And what does God say? Now go and gather my people. David repents in Psalm 51. And while we don't usually think of this as a moment of worship, it is indeed a profound moment of David reconciling with the Lord. And as he's praying all of this, he says, Restore to me the joy of, of your salvation. That's what he's asking. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And then the very next thing he says is, then I will teach transgressors your ways. You see that weird connection between those two things? Isaiah sees the glory of the Lord fill the temple. The doorposts shake. The thing is filled with smoke. He sees, he sees angels. He experiences personal cleansing. Woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Then the Lord sends, a, sends an angel with a coal, cleanses him. This amazing moment of worship ends where? God saying, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? In a few weeks, we will read about the women who just discovered the empty tomb. And there's a moment where they see Jesus and they fall down and grab his feet. And he says, you have to go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Paul worships Christ on the Damascus road. And Jesus says what? He makes him an apostle to the Gentiles. John in the book of Revelation sees Jesus in all of his glory. And John's, you know, on his face. And Jesus says, what? Grab a pen, son. I want you to tell these seven churches something. 
Isn't that interesting? That repeatedly the upward focus on God leads to an outward expression of reaching out and bringing in the ungathered. This makes sense on a number of fronts. When you think about worship, what worship is, on one hand, worship, this gospel-centered worship that we engage in every week, is the exaltation and delight in God over this simple fact. We were outside, and we were brought in. We were strangers to the promises of God, and now we are family. We were enemies, and now we are children. The whole heart of worship is rooted in God's missional activity, whereby he reaches into the lonely and into the broken and makes us whole and puts us into families. The whole act of worship is an expression, a a recitation of God's faithfulness to reach out to us when we weren't gathered and bring us in and gather us together. So the very heart of worship is a recitation, a remembrance of God's act of bringing us in. So it makes sense that the expression of worship shouldn't be simply upward, but also outward. It also makes sense when we just think about the nature of God himself. Here's the idea. God in his triunity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, had a great time before any of us were ever around. There was mutual love, appreciation, respect, care, There was the happy association of Jonathan, as Jonathan Edwards refers to it, the happy association of the three. It was great. Everything was fine. But what does God do in this perfect, glorious, mutual exaltation? Well, somehow that joy overflows into creating a people for himself. And it also makes sense because the truth is, worship is about seeking the heart of God. And I just want to tell you that that when you actually find it, what you're going to see in there is love for the world. What you're going to see once you get to God's heart is, I have sheep that are not of this fold. Once you're going to see when you get to God's heart is, you have brothers and sisters you haven't met. And one day we're going to live forever in eternity. So Jesus' criticism of their gathering is that it had become this closed loop. That the horizontal expression of their worship had ceased to occur. But then he says, instead of a house of prayer, you have made this a den of robbers. What does that mean? What is a den of robbers? Does this mean, by the fact that he chased out the uh, peddlers, does this mean that we shouldn't sell stuff at church? Is Jesus' criticism here about the encroachment of capitalism on the church? Not really. The phrase den of robbers is also rooted in the Old Testament. And it's rooted in a passage, a very short passage in Jeremiah 7. Let me just read that to you real quickly. Jeremiah 7, 9, 10 says, Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered. 
only to go on doing all these abominations. A den of robbers is the place robbers go to find safety after a day of pillaging. Okay, so a den of robbers isn't a place where all the robbers go and rob. Jesus isn't criticizing the exorbitant, probably truly exorbitant exchange rates that the currency converters. He's not criticizing that. He's talking about the temple, the worship gathering, being a place where people could go out and do all sorts of evil things and then come back in and feel safe. Like, that's convicting. He's talking about a place that people run to, that retreat to, to avoid justice. About 130 years ago, I'm brushing up on my Kansas City history. About 130 years ago, there was a guy who roamed these parts named Jesse James. Now, just as an aside, did you know that Jesse James' father actually helped found William Jewell College? Did not know that. Fun fact for you. Well, but when Jesse and his brother Frank would rob a bank, they retreated to one of several hideouts. That's what a den of robbers is. A den of robbers is the place you go to feel safe after doing all your evil deeds. See, Jesus isn't criticizing money currencies or money exchangers or animal salesmen. He's criticizing a way of worship that is developed in which people can live lives of complete bankrupt, moral bankruptcy, of, of disregard for the Lord, and then come in and do a few fancy rituals and then say, I'm okay. He's criticizing an approach to worship that somehow allows the people who engage in that worship to walk away feeling less convicted, but also walk away feeling completely unchanged. He's criticizing a transactional approach to worship. And I just want to let you know that the easiest way that obviously most of us think of when this, when we think of this is legalism, right? Legalism is this way where you can just check off a bunch of boxes and say, there we go. I've done what I'm supposed to do and not actually ask any questions about your heart, not ask any questions about where you actually stand with God. Never be suspicious of your own motives. Never wonder if maybe you did that nice thing the other day. So people would know that, think that you're a nice guy when you're not and so on and so forth. Never going that deep. Legalism offers a perfect opportunity for us to just check off a bunch of boxes and feel like we've done enough and now we can move on. But I have a hug you or punch you in the face moment. The truth is, is that the flesh can use anything to accomplish that, right? The flesh can use anything to give us this false sense of freedom that allows us to go out and do whatever we want. Later on, Paul tells the Galatians, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. In other words, friends, you can use the gospel the very same way that these people were using the law. You and I are susceptible to this transactional approach in this worship time. Where we have not sought the Lord all week and we enter into this time 
and of course, rightly engage the gospel that declares clearly, if you are mine, I love you. But use those statements as a means of assuaging or moving on from or not thinking about the things that we need to do in our lives to walk uprightly with him. I mean, I I have a feeling we've probably all been there. The truth is, is that even us, the the, the pinnacle of theology, reformed people, (laughs) all the way up there, can do this very thing with the doctrines of grace. And particularly, we can do this with the doctrine of total depravity. Spurgeon said, How wrong it is of any of us from the fact of our possessing evil hearts to excuse our sins. I have known some persons who profess to be Christians speak very lightly of sin. There was corruption still remaining, and therefore they said they could not help it. Such persons have no visible part nor lot in God's covenant. The truly loving child of God, though he knows sin is there, hates that sin. It is a pain and a misery to him, and he never makes the corruption of his heart as an excuse for the corruption of his life. He never pleads the evil of his nature as an apology for the evil of his conduct. If any man can, in the least degree, clear himself from conviction of his own conscience on account of his daily failings by pleading the evil of his heart, he is not one of the broken-hearted children of God. So Jesus is saying, I have this vision for the church, that it be this open loop where upward worship and outward care happen. And he's saying that instead of that vision, this den of robbers transactional approach where we live lives undisturbed by God all week and then walk in to wash our hands and go out to face the day is a major problem. So the question I had as I was studying all of this was, well, how do these two things fit together? How do you go from a house of prayer to a den of robbers? What's the connection? Well, I think one thing that we see Jesus doing here is he's, he's using words to point us to some truths about what this gathering is. And it's simply this. House of prayer, den of robbers. Essentially, the thing that this has in common, the thing that this will always be, is that we'll always be a shelter of some kind. But listen to this very important distinction. It will either be a shelter for sinners or a shelter for sin. And I think that's the very nuanced distinction that we should think about more in the upcoming months. This can be and should be a shelter for sinners to run in under the refuge of the steadfast love of the Lord and find relief, true relief, true joy from a true connection to the true and living God that expresses itself in gratitude and thanksgiving and terminates on care for other people. Or it can be a place where we go to hit the reset button 
on our conscience. And allow this place to become not a shelter for sinners, but a shelter for sin. Now, I've thought a lot about this and thought about, well, how do we, how do we avoid that? How do we change that? And here's what I think I see Jesus saying in this passage. What I think he's saying is this. The antidote to the den of robbers problem is the house of prayer approach. That the, the, the antidote to a transactional expression of worship is to have a transformational experience in worship. And the only way we can consistently have a transformational experience in worship is when we see people transformed. Friends, there's these glorious moments where I'm standing up here in the pulpit and I know that someone's visiting, like that I've invited to church, and I know that they're a total secularist and have no interest in this, and they're just doing this because they're nice, and they're sitting here, and I make some statement about complementarity or some statement about the righteousness of God or, heaven forbid, some statement about hell, and I think in my head, they will never be back. And then they come back next week. And I think... They'll never be back. And then they come back the week after that. And I think, they probably won't be back. And then I get an email that says, I think that I'm ready to make Jesus my hope, my trust, my Savior, my Lord. And I see the gospel as an agent of transformation, not simply an opportunity of some cheap transaction. And that's what I'm inviting you into, to join me in doing that very thing, to seeing this unique opportunity we have to gather in this place, to seek his face, while also anticipating that as we gather here to meet with him, he will bring others in to meet him for the first time. And that that experience is a unique way that God guards his church against becoming ingrown, apathetic, lukewarm. The unique experience of bringing people in who you know will be offended, who you know will just think, what in the world is going on? You people are crazy. And then seeing God bring them back again. Or not. But seeing God work in the horizontal is the way to keep the vertical fresh and clean and true. Now, just a couple points of application. The first one is this. Being welcoming to outsiders does not mean watering anything down. Here's what I mean by that. Some churches, many of whom are quite well-meaning, go about welcoming the outsider by watering down the worship experience itself. And that is not what I'm talking about. And I want to be clear about that. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Here's the interesting thing. The temple had taken on the characteristics of a pagan temple. By making it really easy to just go about this transactionally, the, the, the temple of the living God had taken on the characteristics of all the pagan temples. It was The worship experience in, in Jerusalem at that moment would have been very similar to the worship experience in Ephesus at the temple of Diana. You go in, you buy something, the priest fillets it for you. You say a few words and you walk away. In other words, 
Jesus' vision for becoming a house of prayer for all peoples is not to look like all of the other substitutes out there. It's actually the exact opposite of that. The way that God is going to do this, the way that God is going to bring in the outsider is that there will be a distinctiveness about this gathering, a distinctiveness about the experience, something different to them, something unusual to them, something offensive to them that points out truth that they don't see anywhere else. So being welcoming is not for me or for Jesus the same as being watered down. And the second point of application is just this. To be welcoming means to step up. It means to understand that as we leave this place, that our act of worship is not finished until we share what we've been given with someone else who is yet ungathered. That the act of worship is biblically both vertical and horizontal. That this is the beginning of our act of worship, not the sum total of our act of worship. And I have a very practical way for you to apply this sermon this week. Another punch you in the face moment. I asked Dave a couple weeks ago if we could print up some invitation cards for our Easter service. As a way of applying this message and ending our worship at the appropriate horizontal point. So what we'd like to do is we'd like to do our best this next week and the week after to invite our friends and our family and our neighbors and our coworkers to join us for this Easter service. We've printed up 500 of these and we would love for each family to take six or seven of these and to thoughtfully hand these out and to invite other people. And here's what I want to encourage you to do as you do that. I want you to do that in a spirit of worship. I want you to do that bearing in mind this very thing we've been talking about. That handing this to someone with sincerity and love and a hope that they will join us is in fact an expression of worship. It's, it's the other piece that sometimes we miss. It's the other thing we sometimes forget about when we think about worship, the other half of the great commandment. It goes something like this. I get to come and gather before the presence of God every week. I get to experience his grace. I have been called in from the cold. I am in the warmth of God. I am a child, though I used to be an enemy. And Jesus would say, exactly. Now love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so these will be on your way out. Please grab just a, you know six or seven of these and make this not just a duty, not just something I'm asking you to do. Make this an opportunity for you to experience worship this week and next week as you thoughtfully go out and pass these to friends, family, coworkers, neighbors, and so on. Let me pray for us. Lord, please give us an upward and outward heart in our worship. I pray that both would be 
just awesome, that both would be brilliant, both would be clearer than they've been before, that we would have a, a clearer sense of your presence in our midst, and that also as that, ex- as that experience is clearer and truer, that it would, it would lead to overflow into love for others, a fulfillment of your heart for others, a fulfillment for the ungathered, for the sheep that are not of this fold. It is easy, Lord, to turn this into something that is not really even about your heart, but about kind of a way to perpetuate our own independence, our own idolatry, our own desire for comfort and convenience and control. And we repent of that this morning, Lord, and and say that we don't want a transactional approach to this time. We want a transformational approach to this time. We want to experience the transforming work of your spirit in our hearts and also observe the transforming work of the gospel in others. And so, Lord, as this first, uh, someone was joking, Inauguration Sunday, I, I I just put before you that plea as the center of, the, the thing I want the most for us. I want this time to be special in some ways that I think your word clearly calls it to be. Please let it be so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.